0: Seven of Between the Times, a podcast of Christ Church, for Christ Church, and for all who would listen in. When Paul penned his letter to the Roman churches from Corinth in 57 AD, the city of Rome was understood to be the heart of the Gentile world. The formidable city was ground zero of the pagan Roman Empire. Christians were very much in the minority, they had no cultural clout. Zero. There was no societal advantage whatsoever to being a follower of Jesus Christ in Rome. In fact, quite the opposite. For the first two and a half centuries, state-sponsored persecution against Christians was common in Rome. Over 250 years of hardship for the church. Therefore, being a genuine Christian, a committed Christian, held daily risks for the Roman believers. But it was in that context, the context of adversity and suffering, that the church grew and flourished. And this is how God often works. Indeed, we shouldn't think that the church will only be strong when being a Christian is easy. It is often in trying circumstances that our faith and convictions grow the most. The dross of worldliness and sin are often burned away by the fires of adversity. This is what the Roman Christians experienced for generations before things changed in the year 313. Some historians who are listening uh, to this episode will remember that around this time, Emperor Constantine was converted and the Edict of Milan was enacted. This edict gave official tolerance to Christianity. And a little over a decade later, the Christian church became the official religion of the Roman Empire. But the Roman Christians in Paul's day would never know that tolerance. They and their children and grandchildren would only experience a general hostility and regular seasons of persecution towards the faith that they deeply cherished. The world was always against them. What struck me recently is how much our society and culture are increasingly mirroring that of the first century pagan Rome. If you would have walked into ancient Rome in the mid-first century, you would have noticed the grand architecture dedicated to games and theater. There were military fortresses and stately government buildings. There were immense temples dedicated to false gods, with prostitution connected to everyone. Tenement housing or apartments were ubiquitous, alongside shops and huge market squares. Fountains and monuments were sprinkled all throughout the city, paying honor to Caesars and military victories. Perverse sexuality was rampant. Homosexuality was common. It was common for children to be objectified. Abortion was not considered wrong and regularly practiced by all strata of society. This should sound familiar. Our own culture is looking more and more like pre-Constantine Rome every day. And Christians committed to biblical truth are finding themselves more and more marginalized, and in some areas receiving some measure of persecution. And this persecution is not coming because of our views of the Trinity, or of the divinity of Christ, or of our belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. It's because we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, that a man cannot change into a woman, or a woman into a man, and that homosexuality is not God's design, and thus is a sin, and that abortion is murder, and that rather than stir up division and strife over the color of a person's skin, we should treat everyone, no matter what their background or color, with respect, dignity, and honor, because they are made in the image of God. These views, based in Scripture, used to be the majority view, but not anymore. Now, the views that used to be celebrated in our culture are now condemned, and the views that were condemned are now celebrated. And that's what makes studying The book of Romans and the entire New Testament written in the context of the Greco Roman world, so incredibly relevant for us today. Amen. I'm so happy to be here again with my dear friend and co host, Dr. Gabriel Williams. And Gabriel, as I begin with that monologue, uh, which comes from um, a sermon I preached three or so years ago from one of my sermons in the Romans series. I wanted to begin with that to give our listeners a sense of the historical context mm-hmm. uh, of the Zitzenleben the, the situation uh, in life of your average Christian in the Greco-Roman world in the 1st century when the New Testament was written. Many people talk about the irrelevance of the Bible, mm-hmm. uh, of the New Testament. 2000 years old. What could it possibly say to us today in our techno- technologically advanced world and all of our sophistication? Mm-hmm. Well, the truth is the world today is looking a lot like the world then.
1: Exactly. And I thought
0: we could talk about that today.
1: Now there's a, uh, there's a Christian, uh, commentator named Aaron Wren, And he has recently put together kind of a paradigm for how American Christians should, in a sense, view what has happened in the last 10 years when it comes to a Christian standing in society. And it's now today called the three worlds where we had what is called the positive world where being a Christian had many advantages attached to you such that it would be advantageous for you to boast or at least to, put forth that you are a Christian. We then went to a time in which he called the neutral world in which uh, religious pluralism kind of reached its heights where Christianity was not despised, but it was considered one of other equally relevant options. That was the world I kind of went into in college with where being a Christian is just one of many other different faiths. But most people have kind of understood that the world of say, the year 2000 or the 1990s. It's very different now than what we are currently experiencing. And that's what Aaron Wren has called the negative world where being a Christian is wholly negative. And that's because Christian morality is seen as being evil and morally repugnant to most people. And that means it's to your disadvantage to proclaim yourself to be a Christian. Now, His three-world kind of model kind of in a sense fits how a lot of people think about what's going on in world in America today. But as you kind of alluded to, this just puts us back into what it was like to be a Christian before the Edict of Milan happened. It is putting us back into the time period in which being a Christian was fraught with manifold dangers uh, to yourself. And that meant you could no longer just rely upon the goodwill of people to give you the benefit of the doubt. Rather, the perspective that goes on and that went on in the Roman world is that people are willing to slander and to say all matters of evil against Christians. But this is also the world that Jesus himself spoke into. So, you know, think about the last beatitude. Where blessed are you when men revile you and say all manners of evil against you for my sake. That would be incomprehensible to an American, say, in 1955, but we understand that more now in this era where people are willing to believe all sorts of slanderous, evil things about Christians that they never would have 15 to 20 years prior. So, in that sense, kind of what you've kind of alluded to here, the experience of the Christian in the Greco-Roman world, first century, is now mirroring a lot of what we are experiencing. And that means there's no collection of literature that's more relevant to the Christian than when the gospel was proclaimed into that area. So think think of the sins that occurred in Corinth. Corinth was a, I mean, if you were a Corinthian, to be a Corinthian was an immoral term. And everyone in the greco roman world knew that. But that's where the gospel went. The Christians were found in that society. Think about all of the emperor worship that goes on today. So you, you may say there's not emperor worship, but uh, you should remember that in today's world, the devotion that people have to all sorts of scientific authorities and political authorities is not the same level
0: Celebrities
1: and celebrities as well. Sports. <laughs> Yeah. And the same basic principle is going on. They're not necessarily demanding you to say forsake everything uh, for. They're not necessarily demanding you to, well, I'll rephrase it. The claim today is it's okay if you have your own little privatized religion. But when it comes to the public, you need to give incense. (laughs) You need to do what is necessary. And so it is currently the case for many Christians. Many people are perfectly fine having a nice, cute religion that is in the heart and private. But once ethics comes out to public, that's when, as you've read, the vitriol against Christians become clear and obvious to all to see. So kind of going back to what you mentioned, that means in terms of what we ought to be concerned about as Christians is... Are we actually trying to win the approval of this world? Because we know we don't live in a society that treats us favorably. The real question is, are we faithful to the commission that he gave us? And this is why the book of Romans is so powerful and wonderful going through 11 chapters of who we are in Jesus Christ and the doctrine there. But then if you look at the ethics part, Romans 12 through the end, so much of it is how should the christian act in a world that is positively hostile and for most people it would surprise them at the sort of commendations paul is giving in light of the persecutions going on to the church
0: when the culture uh, becomes aggressive in their hostility towards christian believers towards the truth Um, one of the options for Christians is to to hide uh, Mm -hmm. to slink back uh, to keep to themselves to not share their faith and we know what happens uh, in that case now they Mm -hmm. might have all kinds of ways to justify that Mm -hmm. but the problem with that is not only is it disobedient to Scripture but also, the next generation is, is not going to believe yeah. the gospel because they're going to think it's detached from reality, mm-hmm. It's is something we do in our home.
1: Yeah.
0: And the fact is, when we read the New Testament, and we read about the early church, we see not only the apostles, uh, but the people being Mm -hmm. witnesses. Exactly. In fact, we're commanded by Jesus to be salt and light Mm -hmm. in the world. Uh, We are to be light in the darkness. Uh, We are to be a kind of preserving of the good things uh, in the Mm -hmm. world and humanity and so forth. Uh, We are told by Peter in his first epistle to make a defense with gentleness and respect uh, Mm of the gospel, share the hope that's within you. Yeah. Uh, we, we know that in the book of Acts, when persecution broke out and uh, the Christians were scattered from Jerusalem and they went to Judea and Samaria, and uh, we know that there was the sharing of the gospel taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we could go on and then talk about how that first century Greco Roman context was one that was very challenging. In fact, you know, Paul tells Timothy. It, if you um, are in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the context. And now we're experiencing some of that in yeah. our own day. Now, here in the southern part of the United States, it's soft. Mm-hmm. We're not dealing with any hard mm-hmm. challenges at this point. But there are people in Canada um, and in other parts of the United States, and uh, particularly. Uh, in other parts of the world who are dealing with very, very difficult persecution. And Mm -hmm. so, I think that it's important, always important, that we're reading our Bibles, that we're listening to faithful preaching, that there's faithful preaching going on. Mm -hmm. But in our day, the Bible has never been more relevant uh, to to, uh, Christians living in the southern part of the United States.
1: And... This is why the consistent message of Jesus and the apostles is that since persecution will come, the Christian ought to be prepared for it and consider how many of the parables that Jesus tells is about how the Christian ought to stand in that great day. Think about, for instance, uh, in the book of Revelation, you know not going into a sidetrack on eschatology but think about the seven churches in Asia Minor and this is one of the reasons why when you read the New Testament in the context in which it was written you begin to understand that Christians understood that this world is not their lasting city they understood that they are preparing for glory in the world to come or as Other theologians would say they understand that this life is primarily going to be humiliation before the actual glory. It is to come. And hence, many of the ways that you can read the New Testament is in one sense to be encouraged that, as Peter says, the suffering that you're going through is experienced by your brothers all over the world at different times. Now, one of the stories I have told my girls about uh, um, kind of that relates to this is think about what you see in Revelation in the church at Smyrna. Mm -hmm. Now the church at Smyrna, they are told in very clear and unambiguous ways. Many of you will be thrown into prison. Many of you will basically die. And hence the actual exhortation is be faithful unto death and the Lord will give you a crown of life. Now, we know that there's some history that's probably connected to this regarding the church uh, in Smyrna because the Bishop of Smyrna was Polycarp and we have a good kind of background on what Polycarp and many of the Christians in his uh, town were going through at that time. But again, keep in mind what is being said there is that you're not meant to take it as a statement of saying, you're going to prosper in this world, live a comfortable life, and then just kind of ease onto into glory. No, it was very much the opposite, that it was the expectation that they will bear the sufferings of Jesus Christ by the persecution they're going through. And, you know, as Americans, We should be honest to basically say we haven't been most prepared for this because it hasn't been our common experience. We can read those things as kind of inspiring stories, but they're kind of distant from us in a lot of ways. Now, as we kind of move into kind of a post-Christian or better said, an anti-Christian society, those stories are not just going to be far away from us. They're going to be very near. And... Now we get to see the encouragement of the scriptures in ways that we probably haven't seen before. So think about, for example, the life of David, all of the times you see in the Psalms where he praises God for being delivered from the mouth of the lion. He praises God for being delivered from his enemies. He is agonizing in prayer before God to vindicate him and to preserve him and protect him. Again, you know, we can spiritualize that in many ways, but once it becomes a situation where persecution is at your door, it's not surprising that when you read the stories of the martyrs, they're quoting David in the Psalms in the same exact way. The enemies that David had became a type of the enemies that came to the church. You read Psalm 2, for example, when the nations rose up against the lord and his christ the christians and acts understood that to be the attack upon the church that came because they identified with jesus christ and again christians confess the same song uh, the same psalm in the same sort of way that when persecution comes they're rising up against christ ultimately and as christ himself said if they persecuted him will they not also persecute his disciples And so kind of going back to what you started off with, reading on the Greco-Roman world, the experience of knowing that persecution is going to come and that difficulties arise, that's meant to teach us and to instill upon us that we are not living for this world. We are, like it says in Hebrews 11, we are like those who realize that this city is not our home we're looking for a city above who's building a foundation as God himself
0: and as we enter the uh, political process Mm -hmm. uh, with voting for a new president Mm -hmm. or for the uh, the incumbent, Mm -hmm. um, there's going to be a lot of uh, emotion, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of passion among people who really do see this world as their home. Exactly. And and they might not even say that. They may say, no, no, my real home's in heaven. But the way they think and act, uh, the way they speak, uh, it would not seem that hmm. they saw heaven as their final home. And And, and so without in any way minimizing or marginalizing the need for the political process and uh, and making good arguments and having good men and women serving in positions of authority and wanting them to get into those positions of authority, voting them into mm-hmm. office so that they can uh, lead our, our society in a way that's God-honoring um, and and so on and so forth. Um, we want to recognize that in the early church uh, they lived in a context where they had no vote where they had no political clout where they had no one in office as it were Mm -hmm. uh, speaking up for them and and so why do I say all this? I say this because in this coming year more than ever I believe Christians will have to check themselves in terms of whether or not they are acting like Christians Uh in the midst of what is going to be a very volatile um, and polarized election. Uh, In our last couple of elections, the country's been divided right down the middle. And a lot of people have been very upset. Lots of things are said that are so unkind uh, and uh, hateful. And... We need to be careful that we don't get caught up in that. We need to be Mm -hmm. thankful that we have a voice and that we can vote, something that early Christians did not have. Mm -hmm. Um, But we live in a a cultural context not a whole lot different than pre-Constantinian Rome. Um, And so we need to remember all of this and remember that first and foremost, our citizenship is in heaven, that this world is not our home, That we seek to be good citizens, Mm -hmm. faithful citizens, but in the process and in the dialogue, and as we talk to our neighbors, as some of us engage in the political process, there'll be some that'll be involved in, in politics that may be listening to this, we need to do these things in a similar fashion to the way we're encouraged to give the hope that's within us in mm-hmm. First Peter 3.15 exactly that is with gentleness and respect we need to be respectful we need to speak the truth in love um, and not allow the hype and the media and all the ways that, that the politicians are talking to each other mm-hmm. and all the ways that the media communicates to affect the way we live and speak and think about these things and so mm-hmm. uh, you know i'm i'm uh, doing what we always do here at gay we talk <laughs> off the cuff we don't do a lot of preparation for yeah. this podcast but i hope what i'm saying is getting through that we need to maintain our christian christian witness in the coming year and you know mm-hmm. the scriptures are going to help us to do that
1: amen and it should be remembered that in the greco-roman world at the time that the gospels were written there were many, many different political upheavals going on. There were many different factions trying to overthrow Rome. There was a sense of Jewish uh, fervor to basically, again, throw out the Roman uh, emperors themselves and establish Jerusalem as the city uh, for the Jews. So there was already a revolutionary zeal going on politically at the time the gospel is written. And that's why Paul's words and the other apostles are very counterintuitive, that their words inspire the persecution is that we are not zealots overthrowing this society. We are Christians and we will be good citizens. We will, as Peter says, we will not be known, uh, we will not be persecuted because of bad behavior. We're gonna be persecuted because of our virtuous good behavior. And that's why the command is to, from Peter, be careful how you behave around those who are outsiders. So the command isn't that we're joining into the fervor. The act Paul and Peter were very much opposed to that idea. So how do you apply that to today? We know that there's fervor going on because of perceived slights that happened during the last election and it will come up again, particularly since we have one candidate who may or may not be on the ballot of every state. And so we know that there will be heightened zeal and passion. And so the question you ask yourself is, is this what Paul would have asked you to do, to basically get involved with such revolutionary zeal that you are trying to overthrow the very foundations of a society? Rather. Christians should kind of think to themselves, and it's something that's worth meditating upon. As you've mentioned, in the Greco Roman world, Christians didn't have any sort of choice in who their emperor was, that was not in their purview. It is possible that one day in this country, Christians will not have political clout. So, the question is, are you fighting for that political clout, or are you, in a sense, figuring out how you ought to live your life when the day comes when Christians cannot swing elections as they used to maybe a generation prior. And that's something every Christian is going to have to, in some case, stomach. If we get the sort of leaders that we have been getting since I've been an adult (laughs) in this country, and if Christians no longer have political clout to swing these elections... What is your hope and security going to be in? Is your hope and security going to be in? I hope one day that I'll get a Christian leader that will basically overturn all of these crazy laws that's being there, or will you have the same hope that Paul, Peter, and John proclaimed confidently in the epistles? Rather that, again, it's you know we're saying it repeatedly, but this is not our home. We are here because we are saw in light, and God himself is going to deliver his church from this world.
0: Amen. And, Gabe, I want to make clear what we are not saying. Yes. Uh, we are not saying that we shouldn't care mm-hmm. about good leaders,
1: mm-hmm.
0: about protecting children mm-hmm. from those who would seek to do wicked things. Mm-hmm. Surgeries. Um, exactly. Um, uh, we're not saying that we shouldn't be working hard to get good leaders into office who are going to protect the unborn. Mm-hmm. Uh, or who are going to, uh, you know, get, you know we, we're not saying we don't want good leaders who aren't going to encourage uh, the proper definition of marriage mm-hmm. and uh, are going to protect religious freedoms and free speech. Uh, of course, we need yes. to work towards getting good leaders into office who will do these things. But the point is, is that ultimately,
1: mm-hmm.
0: our hope is not in getting good leaders exactly. into office in the United States. Our hope is in the gospel, Amen. just as it was for the early church, mm-hmm. just as it is for Christians in North Africa, mm-hmm. in the Middle East, Uh, in these parts of the world where they not only are marginalized in society, but persecuted Mm -hmm. and looked down upon in the same way that Christians were in ancient Rome. Uh, So this isn't in any way a, a, a kind of word against fighting for the good things that we've enjoyed in America, the freedoms it's that we don't ultimately put our hope and our trust in that. Because we mm-hmm. may not always have that. Exactly. But we will always have God's steadfast love. Amen. We will always have Christ. And that's why when Paul talks about um, the fact that our citizenship is in heaven, mm-hmm. in, in Philippians 3, and why in Hebrews it says that we look forward to a better country. Um This must be the case as we come into election year. Um, And so this is just one of the ways that we apply this idea that the scriptures are extremely relevant Mm -hmm. for us today. Um, The society is so similar now uh, here in our own context, here in America, as to what it was in the first century Greco-Roman world. And so we have to read our Bibles with, um, with zeal, Uh, with great interest uh, to learn, to grow, and and to to learn how to live as Christians every day.
1: Amen. And that means if you think about the Christians uh, during the Greco-Roman world in the first century, they were still confident in their confession of faith. They maintained their witness in spite of great pressure. And if the Lord preserved his church in the first century and inspired many to make a very bold stance for Christ in that particular uh, social political setting, he can do the same and he will do the same today for his people. So this is not a a statement to say we should be afraid of the future. This is actually the opposite, that in light of what the future is, we still have our confidence in Jesus Christ, who is the one who not only is the king of the church and the protector of the church, But he is the one who himself has said, be not afraid. I have already overcome the world. And the same will be the case for everyone who puts their hope and confidence in Christ.
0: The body they may kill, God's truth, Truth, abide still. His kingdom is forever.
1: Amen. uh,
0: Those words of Luther ring true for us today. Well, dear Christian, be encouraged. Stand firm in the gospel. Respond uh, to uh, the difficulties of this life and those who would challenge your faith uh, with gentleness and respect, sharing with them the hope that is within you, the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who by his grace sent his son into the world to live perfectly according to the requirements of the law, and then as a perfect law keeper laid his life down on the cross to die for our sins uh, and to receive in his person the very wrath of God. And then on the third day to rise again from the dead for our justification. We put our hope and our trust in him alone, and may he receive all the glory. We hope you'll join us next time on the Trinity.